Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us today. I want to say hello to everybody joining us uh, online as well. That's a great option. Uh, thanks for participating through that venue. And if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service, uh, we've got the parent viewing rooms. That's a great option for that. And anybody watching in the cafe, thanks for participating there. Uh, we are in uh, kind of wrapping up a series today called uh, Holy Shift. And we've been talking about, uh, from the very beginning of this year, these fundamental shifts that you can make in your life, a shift in this area, a shift in that area that really have the power and the potential to change the whole trajectory of your life in 2024 and beyond. And so we've said this, uh, the first week we said, we want to shift from me to we, to recognize I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself. And to do that, we go, man, we are better together, so we ought to get good at doing together better. And so how do we do that? We, we join groups and we, we participate together. We make sure that we don't just, uh, you're never going to know everybody, but you should know somebody. And that you have some kind of connection with somebody who's helping you grow in your faith. You're helping them grow in their faith. And then uh, the second week we said, we want to make this shift from greed to generosity, from the mindset that says, when it comes to my money, it's all about how do I get more? And rather, that we shift our thinking to going, when it comes to my money, it's how do I manage however much I've been entrusted? It's a much different question to ask. And that simple shift, changing how you view your money and asking that question, can have a profound impact on your life and your faith. And then last week, we said, we want to shift from being uh, uh, comfortable to committed. We want to shift to being people who are committed to being a part of a mission that's bigger than ourselves, and we want to say yes to the next generation. We want to make sure that the faith of the next generation, uh, you know, really stays intact. And to do that, we need more and more people to say, you know what, I'm just not a uh, I don't just attend a great church. I'm helping make the church great. And so last week, we had uh, almost 100 people sign up to say, I want to serve in kids and students and be a part of making sure that the faith of the next generation uh, is intact. And so, man, I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for signing up. That's so huge. And uh, we're working overtime this week trying to get everybody connected and plugged in and make sure we have a spot for you. Now, today, we're going to wrap up this series. And to, to kind of kick things off today, uh, I want to start off with... Something that was from my childhood, uh, somebody was laughing this morning, we said, everything from my childhood is now called vintage. So this is a vintage uh, game show. Uh, back when I was growing up, I watched this popular game show called the $25,000 Pyramid. It was a great game show. Uh, it was basically a word association game. So you'd say different words, and you'd have to say one word clues, and you're trying to get them to guess this one key word. Now, there's one big difference between the $25,000 pyramid and us today, and that is we are not giving away $25,000. So that's the only difference, okay? Now, uh, I'm going to say a few words, and once I say a few words, I'm going to see if you can guess this. Some of these are pretty easy. Okay, here we go. Uh, pigskin, touchdown, Minnesota Vikings. Football, right? Yeah, pretty easy. How about this one? They'll get <coughs> progressively harder. Here we go. Island, volcano, tropical, vacation. Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. How about this? Beauty, heaven, scrumptious, fantastic. That is correct. Chipotle is what we were looking for there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Good job. How about this? Demonic, occult, bad luck, evil. Anybody? Anybody? Did I hear it? Cats? <laughs> that is the correct answer. That is what we were looking for. We were looking for cats. Okay. How about this? <laughs> Stained glass window, pews, choir, robes, church, right? Why is it? The, the reason that you knew that it was church is because we all have this idea about what church is. 
based on something, right? Some type of an idea. We, we view church through the lens of our culture, through the lens of an experience we had, through the lens of our upbringing. Uh, we just go, well, these are kind of like symbols that people think of when they think of church. And there are a lot of things that people naturally resist about church. When you think about some of these things, some of these things conjure up images of like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And there are things that people naturally resist about church. And the truth is, the things that people tend to resist about church are things that the church ought to resist about itself. Churches sometimes do some things that you go, man, we should actually resist that about ourselves. I have never, ever heard someone say that the reason that they don't want to belong to a church is because followers of Jesus are just too loyal to Jesus. They just love him too much. They're just too kind. They're too loving. They're too patient. They're too joyful. I've never heard that. Almost every objection I've ever heard as to why someone doesn't belong to a church had zero to do with Jesus and everything to do with how they were treated by someone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. Almost 100% of the time. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus, people were drawn to him. People were attracted to him. People didn't run from Jesus. People ran toward Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus really liked Jesus. And it's amazing that while Jesus showed up as a religious leader, he never really gravitated towards religious people. If you look all through the eyewitness accounts, even though uh, Jesus came from God, he didn't really pursue those who considered themselves to be the most godly. In fact, it was the people who were nothing like Jesus who seemed to really like Jesus. And the group that was the most uncomfortable with the temple and the group that was the most uncomfortable with temple worship seemed to be the group of people that were most comfortable hanging out with Jesus. Like everywhere Jesus went, he drew a crowd. And here's why. This is, this is I think, why people were so drawn to Jesus. See, people were drawn to Jesus because he used different labels, very different than the way you and I use labels. Uh, to help us understand this, we're going to look at some stories, and maybe you're familiar with some of these stories. Maybe you've been in church, or maybe you've heard some of these before, or maybe these will be new for you. And the truth is that these stories are critical to help us understand how Jesus uses labels and how Jesus sees people. And he starts off telling this story, and you can find these in Luke chapter 15. If you want to read this week, you can. But this is how it starts. Jesus is, uh, Luke is recording this for us, and it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So even, even Luke is using different labels to describe the different groups of people that were there. He says there's tax collectors, there's other notorious sinners, and there's also Pharisees and teachers of religious law. And he says, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that Jesus, that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, this is a big deal. If you're eating with someone, that kind of says that you're in relationship with someone. That says, look, uh, when it comes to eating with someone in the first century, that means I have friendship with them. It, it points to the fact that we aren't just acquaintances. We don't just pass each other in the marketplace if I've been to their house, they've invited me in or I've invited them in and we've sat eyeball to eyeball and we've had conversation and when you share a meal with someone, the, the, the implication is that there is a friendship there. There's a relationship there. And so the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, saw themselves as the gatekeepers. Their, their job was to keep out the riffraff, keep out all these uh, tax collectors and notorious sinners. And they were upset because Jesus seem to have friendship with them. So you have the Pharisees, these religious people. They're supposed to be closest to God. They're supposed to be the people who represent God to the rest of the people. <laughs> and you can see why they're so easy to resist. 
They, all they want to do is keep people out. They're going, Jesus, we're supposed to be the ones who are most godly. And if you're coming from God, it would only make sense that you would hang out with the most godly. And yet you seem to say that you're from God and only hang out with the most ungodly. What's the story? And we all use labels from time to time. Those are the educated people. Those are the affluent people. Those are the athletic people. Those are the obnoxious people. Or sometimes just those aren't my people. And one of the things that was unique about Jesus was the way that he used labels to describe different groups of people. In these verses, Luke uses labels. He says there's tax collectors. He says there's other notorious sinners. He says there's Pharisees. He says there's uh, teachers of religious law. And you would think that, Jesus, if you claim to be a religious leader, you would hang out with those of us who are religious leaders. And Jesus recognized that both the sinners and the religious viewed themselves through a specific set of labels. It was good versus bad. It was clean versus unclean. It was sinner versus righteous. It was insider versus outsider. It was those who were already in versus those who were on the outside looking in. And so Jesus decided to teach all of them the same, at the exact same time, the labels that he uses and the way that God sees people, the lens through which God sees all people, whether they're on the inside or the outside. So he starts to tell some stories. And he launches into this first story, and it goes like this. So Jesus told them this story. He can sense the tension. He can sense that the Pharisees and religious leaders are upset with him, and, and there's angst, and there's anxiety because of how often he hangs out with these tax collectors and notorious sinners and even eats with them, and they're complaining about it. And so to make his point, he tells this story. If a man is 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And all the farmers that are in the, you know, all the shepherds, rather, that are in the, in the crowd, they go, yeah, that's exactly what we do. We would do that. We, the 99 that are safe, we'd leave them there safe in the pen, and we would go look for the one that's lost. And Jesus, you got it, you're 100% accurate. That's what we do. And Jesus continues, and he says, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. And, and they're going, yeah, that's what we do. And Jesus is making a very important point. Jesus is bringing us to this point where we recognize and understand when something of value is lost, we search for it to the exclusion of what is found. Isn't that true? Imagine if you uh, lost your keys, your roommate lost their keys, your spouse lost their keys, and they come in and they're like, man, ah, God, I can't find my keys. Can you help me find my keys? Your response isn't, hey, at least you got your car. <laughs> well, yeah, I know I have my car. I'm, that's not missing. I'm not worried about my car. I, I need to find my keys. Several years ago, uh, my daughter Chloe was about three years old, and we were at Culver's here in Albertville, and she decided it would be really fun to slide behind the garbage can and hide. <laughs> and we're like frantic. And if you're a parent, you know that feeling when one of your kids goes missing, and you kind of, at first, you're just like, oh, she's here, and you kind of look around, and pretty soon you don't see her anywhere in Culver's. And you know that like, that real warm, fuzzy feeling that sets in? of like incredible panic and anxiety. And you imagine every worst case scenario that could possibly happen in the course of like three seconds. And you look outside and you're like, I can't find her, I can't find her. And you're like freaking out. And you know it could probably be 30 seconds and it is the worst 30 seconds of your life. You're just like, where is she? And you're like, Ugh. you're looking around, you're looking around like, have you seen Chloe? Have you seen Chloe? Have you seen Chloe? 
Could you imagine if somebody's like, I mean, you have two other ones. What's the big deal? And the point is this, like at that time we only had three kids. Like we have, you're like, wait a minute, he has four, I think. Yeah, we have four, sorry. And here's the thing. When something is lost, you search for it to the exclusion of what is found. I'm not worried about my other two kids. They're sitting in the booth. And it's not a reflection of how much I love my other two kids. It's just that when someone's missing, they are the priority. When, something, when someone is lost, they're the priority. All, they get all of your attention and all of your focus. And this is the point Jesus is making. If you had a lost sheep, you'd leave the other 99. You'd go after the one that is lost. And he says, when, when you find it, then you'd rejoice, right? Then he says this. He says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Do you understand, Jesus says, that, that, man, God rejoices. The angels rejoice. There's a party in heaven when someone who is disconnected from God becomes reconnected to God. And the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, hold on, Jesus. The religious leaders are going, oh, okay, hold on. So you're saying, like, like, we're all like the sheep, and you're like the shepherd. And so then, like, these sinners are like the one that's missing. So you're saying, wait, God's more interested in these sinners and tax collectors than he is in us? And before anybody can ask the question, and before anybody can say anything, Jesus launches into another story. And he goes like this. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And they're going, yeah, that's what we do. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And again, the point that Jesus is making is that when something of great value is lost, you go to extreme measures to find it. You go to great lengths to find it, even to the exclusion of what is already found. And we know that's true. And they all agree. So then Jesus tells a third, final, and powerful story. And in this story, it causes a a holy shift in our thinking. That we would shift from insider to includer. That we would see people through the lens that Jesus sees people. That we would use the labels that Jesus uses for people. And they all agree when something of great value is lost, you go to great lengths to find it. And so now he wants to tell them what is of greatest value to his heavenly father. And again, you can read this story. I'll summarize it for you. And maybe some of you have heard this before. Jesus says, there is a wealthy man and he has two sons. And the younger brother comes to him and says, dad, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, in first century Jewish culture, that would have been absurd. Like you could probably have heard Jesus's audience gasp at that point because they're going, like that is incredibly insulting. Because everybody knows you don't get the inheritance until later on after the father has already died. And he's saying, hey, dad, let's just acknowledge what is. This relationship is dead. It's as if it's dead. So why don't you just go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance and let me move on with my life. And the dad, to the astonishment of the crowd, agrees. And he gives the younger brother his inheritance. And actually, Jesus says the father splits up the inheritance between both brothers. And the younger brother takes his inheritance and he goes off to a distant country. And there he squanders everything that he has on wild living, Jesus says. It's like he went to Vegas, 
He got the most expensive penthouse room he could find. He started gambling like crazy. He started buying all the booze that he could for all of his friends. And he was spending it on prostitutes. And he just went through all of his money. And then in the country that the son is in, a famine takes place. The country starts to run out of food. And pretty soon he runs out of money. And now he finds himself homeless. He finds himself with nowhere to live, no food to eat. And so he gets a job, Jesus says, feeding pigs. Now, again, sometimes you got to understand, like, Jesus is going worst case scenario on this because for a Jewish person, they were never around pigs. That's not kosher. They never eat pork. Uh, They don't eat bacon. It's just like that is considered unclean. And now here you have, not only has he broken this relationship with his dad, but he's feeding pigs. He's completely, in their world, unclean. He was so hungry, he longed to eat the food that he was feeding the pigs. And while he's sitting there, he starts to remember his dad's house. And he goes, you know what? What am I doing? Kind of, kind of this aha moment. He comes to his senses and he goes, my father has plenty of food, plenty of work. I, I, I know I've blown it. I could never be his son again. I know I've blown that relationship. That window's already closed, but even his servants have it better than this. If I just go home and beg to be a servant, at least I'd have three meals and a roof over my head. And I know what I'm gonna say. He prepares his speech, and his his speech goes like this. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but if you'll take me back as a servant... He's like, at least then I could just get on the property. At least then I could, just, I could just be taken care of. And so he sets out to go back home. And he's going back home, and, and he's realizing I'm completely disconnected. And the word that Jesus uses is lost, that he knows that he's lost. He's missing home, and he's wondering if home is missing him. And in Jesus' audience sits people just like you and me, people who are far from God, people who are disconnected from God, people who are wondering, going, God, I I miss you. I'm wondering if you're missing me. And the son goes home, and he's got a a speech in his back pocket all prepared and all planned out, and he's ready to to approach his dad and ask him just to be a servant. And it's amazing. I I know I'm disconnected from God. I'm missing God, but God, are you missing me? And if you would have asked the Pharisees and religious leaders, they would have said, God's not missing them. Are you kidding these, these sinners, God's not missing them. And if you would have asked everybody who falls under the label of tax collectors and other notorious sinners, they'd say, yeah, I, I'm missing God, but is God missing me? No, God's not missing me. And this is why this story is so incredibly important. And this is why grace is so incredibly important. See, grace, God's grace rewrites the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And all of us have a story that is running in our minds, a soundtrack that we live our lives to. And I wonder what that looks like. And I wonder what that soundtrack says. And I wonder what we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so this son takes a chance and he goes home. And what happens next? It blows the minds and it blows all the categories and all the labels to pieces because the people sitting in Jesus's audience didn't share his view of labels. The story continues while he's a long way off. While he's still a long way off, while he's coming down the road and he's got a speech in his pocket and he's ready to ask his dad just to let him back on the property. While he's a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with what? And whatever you put in the blank reveals what our priorities are. 
And the Pharisees are going, I don't know, he's filled with probably disgust. Uh, the father saw him and was filled with embarrassment. The father saw him and was filled with shame. What, what do you put in the box? What do you put in the blank? Whatever you put there reveals our priorities. It reveals the lens through which we see people. It reveals the labels that we tend to use. And here's what Jesus says. While he was a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. And the Pharisees are going, whoa, 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 compassion? Wrong word, Jesus. No father would feel compassion for a son who did that. that. That's wrong. Are you kidding? Jesus would say, you're right. If you use the wrong labels. But grace rewrites the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And God's grace rewrites the story that the son had written about himself. And so he comes back home and he sees his dad. And before he can even see his dad, his dad sees him while he's a long way off and he's running toward him. And maybe at some point he sees his dad sprinting toward him and goes, oh no, dad's really mad. And here's what happens. The dad runs up to the son. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. I love this story. When Jesus' audience heard this, they gasped. They're like, they didn't understand Jesus' labels. In their minds, it's clean or unclean. It's acceptable or unacceptable. It's respectful or disrespectful. And in their minds, the son failed on all accounts. But Jesus doesn't see people that way. Jesus doesn't see people the way that you and I see people. Jesus used different labels to describe the son. He would say this, he was dead and now he's alive. Now he's not talking about physically, he's talking about relationally. The relationship was dead and now it's alive again. Jesus would say this, here's the labels Jesus would use, he was lost and now he's found. Jesus isn't talking about GPS coordinates, he's talking about relationship. He's saying disconnected from God, and now he's found again. The son was disconnected from the father, and the father had longed for and desired for relationship with his son, and now it's finally happening, and the father is overjoyed. There's a lot of labels that describe you. There's a lot of labels that describe me. And this is how the God of the world sees you and me, and this is how the God who created the universe sees everybody in your neighborhood. This is how the God who created the universe sees everybody in your workplace, everybody in your mom's club, everybody in your algebra class, everybody in your yoga class, everybody on the highway, everybody that you ever come eyeball to eyeball with. These are the labels that God uses. This is how Jesus sees it. There are a lot of things I would say to describe this person, but let me tell you how I see the world, Jesus says. There are people who are connected to their father in heaven, and there are people who are disconnected from their father in heaven. There are people who are in relationship with God, who have experienced the grace of God in their life, and there are people who haven't yet experienced the grace of God in their life. And my primary concern is not the connected. It's not those who are already there. The thing that brought me to earth, Jesus would say, the, the thing that brought me here was to help those who are far from God and disconnected to reconnect with their heavenly Father. And the reason Jesus spent so much time with people who were disconnected from God was specifically because they were disconnected from God. And the reason that Jesus was drawn to people who were far from God is specifically because they were far from God. And meanwhile, the older brother, he hears the partying. 
He hears the, the music and the laughter and the dancing and the celebration. And he comes back in from working the fields and he is upset. He is ticked off. He goes to his dad and, and he refuses to come into the party. He's out pouting outside and the dad comes out and says, son, what's going on? What's wrong? And he says, in all these years, I've kept all of your rules. I've never wasted the inheritance that you gave me. I've never squandered it on wild living. And yet, he says, this son of yours, not my brother, he says, this son of yours takes this inheritance and he, and he lives this wild life. And I don't know if you've heard, Dad, but the stories are making their way back here and it's pretty ugly. And, and he's completely wasted it. And you celebrate him? And, and yet, I've been with you this entire time. I've kept all of your rules. I've done everything you've asked of me. And you haven't even given me a small goat to have a little bonfire with my friends. And here, this son of yours comes home after doing what he's done, and you kill the fattened calf, and you guys are all in grilling and having a great time. And again, the grace of God rewrites the story that the older brother tells himself about himself. Listen to how the grace of God responds to someone who feels entitled. Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. The, the older brother was telling himself a story of entitlement. I, I, I get to decide, Dad. I, I, I've kept the rules. I, I've, been, I've been a good guy. And so I, I've earned what you've given me. Like, this inheritance, this, is, this belongs to me. I've earned it. And somehow he'd earned his share of the inheritance because he'd behaved the right way and done the right things and said the right things. And somehow he'd gotten slighted because his father had given away a portion of his inheritance to his selfish younger brother. And it's the narrative that the older brother had been telling himself. And God's grace rewrites that story as well. You've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. You think this is about an inheritance getting split between him and you? Son, you're in the family. You have access to everything. Son, when you're already connected to your heavenly father and you understand everything he has is yours, it reminds you of your heavenly father's priorities. And it frees you to join the celebration when lost people become found people. That's good news. There are some of us sitting here today who have been part of a church for a long time. We've said yes to the grace of Jesus. And there was a time when we were like, I don't, I don't know what God thinks of me, but now you know, man, God's grace has rewritten the story that I tell myself about myself. But can I tell you something? It can be really easy when you're sitting in here to start to get really comfortable and to start to understand things and you start to learn some of the words of the songs and you start to live a certain way and pretty soon you go, you know what? I've earned this. I, I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm following Jesus' way, and I'm a pretty good person, and I'm starting to love the way that Jesus loves. And, and if we're not careful, we can shift into thinking what the older brother thought, that I'm entitled. And, and when anyone comes from the outside, it starts to become a threat to our way of life, to our preferences. And here's what we got to remember. Every single week, there are people who are walking into a church like this. And you know what they're walking in? With a speech in their pocket, wondering how they're going to be received. They're walking in with a speech in their pocket that, that reads something like this. I don't know. I, I'm not worthy. 
I've got stuff in my past. I've blown it. I'm not worthy, but maybe if you'll receive me, maybe I have a chance. Maybe I could come in. Maybe I'd be accepted. But I'm not really sure. And our responsibility is to see through the lens of our Heavenly Father, to see them while they're a long way off, and to run toward them, filled with compassion. See, we've been invited to join the search party. Isn't that good news? It's amazing. We must never forget that God's heart beats fast for those who are lost, not as a GPS coordinate, but as those who are disconnected relationally. And Jesus, in his own words, would say it like this. In a reference about himself, he's, this word son of man is a reference to himself. Jesus says this, for the son of man came to find and restore the lost. Jesus says, I'm, that's why I came. I'm looking for people who are lost, not lost on a map. I'm looking for people who are disconnected from God because my heart beats fast for them. And if you've already experienced the immeasurable and unimaginable and unending grace of God in your life, where you go, man, I know I was lost and now I'm found. You've always been with me. God would say, everything I have is yours. But that means that the story you tell yourself about yourself has been rewritten and we must create environments that invite other people to do the same. We made a fundamental decision the very first day that we started Westbridge Church that we would be more interested in reaching people than in keeping people. And this is what happens in churches. Churches start to turn inward over time, over months, over years. Pretty soon, you start with, when we started the church, we literally had nothing. And I would tell people, man, we're risking it all. We had nothing to risk. That wasn't a lie. We were risking it all. I was like, man, if this church doesn't, you know, we're going to go down in flames. We've got $10 in the bank account, you know? And then we would grow, and we would grow, and we'd grow, and more people started coming, and pretty soon you, you develop assets, and now we have a building, and we have staff, and we have things going on. And we've got to be really, really, really intentional that we don't start to turn inward, because here's the gravitational pull of every single church over time. It starts to go like this, and it goes, eh, I don't know. I don't want to offend the people who are here who are paying the bills. It's just a natural thing. And so we've got to constantly force ourselves to think and see the world the way that God sees the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost people who are far from God, who are disconnected from God. We better get on a search party because we're already here. And if you've already experienced God's grace, we made a fundamental decision. We're going to be more excited about reaching people than keeping people, that we are going to be just as focused on lost people as we are on found people. Because the mission of the church is to help people find and follow Jesus. We're going to help people find Jesus, and then we're going to walk with them and show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. Our mission is not to protect the safety and comfort of the insiders. Because if you call this your church home, and you've already experienced the grace of God in your life, you're already going to heaven. God's heart beats fast for those who are disconnected. And we love you. There's a place for you here in God's family. But I beg you, let's get busy being people who find other people, who help people find Jesus. Because if you're already found, found people, find people. That's the goal. In fact, the Apostle Paul would later say it like this. He's writing to a group of people in the first century. And he, he says this, all of this, all of this, he's talking about the grace of God, how God has brought us back to himself, how it wasn't through anything we've done, but God has brought us back to him. He says, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task 
of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. In other words, you were far from God. You were the runaway son. You were sitting in the pig stall. You were wondering, you know, God, would you even ever take me back? And, and, and Paul says, Jesus, through, through him, we're reconciled to God. He doesn't look at any of that. He doesn't count any of that against us. Then he would say this, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who goes to a foreign nation on behalf of their nation of citizenship, and they reflect the values and the decisions of the nation from which they come into a foreign nation. They are an ambassador for, so when you have a U.S. ambassador that's in another country, they're representing the interests and the values and the decisions of the United States. And Paul would say this, it's like we're, it's like we're ambassadors in a foreign nation. Like our citizenship is in God's kingdom, and we are to be ambassadors here on planet Earth. We're, not, we're foreigners here because our citizenship now is found in God's kingdom. And it's like we are to reflect the decisions and the values and the way of life of this new kingdom. We're Christ's ambassadors. He says God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We're a reflection of what God is doing in the world. Paul is invoking the imagery of Jesus' story of the disconnected son. And all over our community, there are people who are disconnected from God, and they're wondering if God is missing them. And let's be a church that doesn't become so content with who is here that we stop pleading with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our loved ones, come back to God. And we want to create environments that make that easy. Let's be Christ's ambassadors. Let's prioritize what Jesus did. Let's do everything we can to create environments where disconnected people can connect with God or maybe even connect with God for the very first time or reconnect with God. So let me give you three practical, practical things that you can do that you can put into practice even in the next week that will help us to do this. Because I don't know anybody who doesn't want to do this. It's just that sometimes we've got to figure out how to do it. Number one, we share Jesus when we share our lives. We just have to share our lives. See, let me ask you this question. What is your life message? When people look at your life, what will they say about it? This is what the Apostle Paul says in uh, the first century, writing to a group of people. He says, the news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. It's like people look at your life, and it's like they understand who Jesus is because they're watching you. So what does it mean when your life is the message? Does it mean I have to buy Christian t-shirts and wear them around everywhere? When I was a teenager, we'd always have this one day out of the year uh, where a bunch of youth groups all over the state would go to Valley Fair and we'd wear a Christian, Christian t-shirt day. And I remember my favorite one, it was, like, it's, it was like a Gold's Gym t-shirt, but the L was missing, so it just said God's Gym. And it was meant to mimic like a Gold's Gym shirt and Jesus, he's like doing a push-up with a cross on his back. Arr. It's amazing. Like, in all my years as a teenager, I never had somebody walk up to me and be like, man, I've never been interested in, uh, you know, anything about church or God or faith, but I saw your t-shirt. Tell me more. <laughs> never happened. Well, what does it mean to share your life? Is it a bunch of external things? Do I need to get a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot? Or, or, you know, get the fish on the back of my car? And then you see like people that have the Darwin fish. It's like a fish with legs. And they're like, ha ha, Christians, evolution. And then there's like people who have like a fish 
like a Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. I'm not sure that's the message we want to send, you know? <laughs> hey, God wants to eat your face. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's really what we're going for. I think it's critical that we make a connection with what God is saying in the verse that we read. That, that, that we are Christ's ambassadors. In other words, we are to reflect Christ in the world. Here's, here's the, how Jesus would say it. You're the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. He says, you know what it's like? It's like you're proof of God in a world where God seems invisible. It's like you're proof of God in a world where God seems absent because the way that you live your life, people just shake their heads and go, I can't explain it other than God. It's like you represent something that's bigger than yourself and nobody loves like that and nobody, nobody forgives that quickly and nobody treats people that way, especially when they disagree with them. Like, like the people that you disagree with the most on the most issues, it's like you seem to love them best. What's up with that? It's like, it's like your, your life is like a light in a dark world. That's how you share your life. You do this on a daily basis by the way that you live. And one of the most practical ways that you can share Jesus with your life is to share your life every weekend that you're here, that you connect with people, that you look them in the eye, that you say hello, that you say good morning, that you, that, that you, that you show up and share your life with others. All across the world, hundreds of thousands of people will visit a church for the first time. And some of them are doing that for the first time in years and years and years. And the church that doesn't prepare to receive that gift is missing out on the heart of Jesus. So we want to be an outward-facing church that has our eyes down the road, that's looking for people that are walking through these doors going, I don't know what God thinks of me. And we want to be the light of the world to those people. Here's the second thing you can do, really practically. We share Jesus when we share our story. When you just share your story. Uh, there's a story in, uh, in John chapter 9 about a man who's blind and Jesus heals him. But the problem is Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. Big no-no in first century Jewish culture because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they're really peppering this guy with questions. They're going, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, pretty cool that you can see now or whatever, but who healed you? Like, that's wrong. We got to find that person. We got to punish them. And they're, they're asking him, and they're asking him, and they're asking him. He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know the guys. All I know is the man healed me. And finally, after asking him again and again and again, I love his final response. He says, This, this is what I know. I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. Guys, I don't know his name. I don't know where he came from. But here's what I do know this morning I woke up, everything was dark, and now I can see. And for some of you, that's your story. I, uh, we get worried that people are going to ask us all kinds of questions that we can't answer. Like, I don't want to ever talk to people about my faith or, or share my story with people because what if they ask me stuff, right? Well, the Da Vinci Code says there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible and where did the dinosaurs go and how many angels can you fit in a VW bug? I don't have any answers to these questions. You don't have to have answers to these questions. You just share your story. Here's what I know. This is what my life was like. And then I met Jesus. And this is what my life is like now. I, I was filled with bitterness and rage because of what happened to me in my past. But then I met Jesus and it was like, I was, I was able to find a way to forgive. I was filled with anger. And then I met Jesus and he's brought peace to my life. I was filled with all kinds of anxiety. And then I met Jesus and, and now my life is different. I trust him. Your story can make a difference in somebody else's life. Here's, here's what it was like before I met Jesus. And then I decided to start following Jesus. And it hasn't always been easy, but now this is what my life looks like now. 
Jesus has made a difference? Would you be willing to share your story somewhere along the way? And finally, we share Jesus when we share an invitation. Would you share an invitation? Gallup does a bunch of surveys and polls, and they did a survey that found that 65 million Americans don't go to church, and 34 million said they would if someone would invite them. Like 50% of everybody that you know that doesn't go to church probably would go to church if they were just extended an invitation. They're just not going to go on their own. Aren't you glad someone invited you? Would you consider inviting someone else? See, this shouldn't even be a surprise because this is how it happened all throughout the scriptures. When Andrew first met Jesus, listen to what this says. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. And then Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. He's like, hey, come here. You got to meet this guy. Hey, come here. Come with me. You got to, I don't know. You just got to meet him. And what if every single one of us determined to invite one person with us to Westbridge Church in 2024? You know what my favorite conversations are that I have? Probably once a month. My favorite conversation, I've shared with this, you, uh, this with you before. My favorite conversation is the person that pulls me aside in the lobby and goes, hey, psst, hey, psst, hey, my neighbor's here. I love that because that's code for don't screw this up for me. Don't be weird today. Please, just let it be a normal service. And I make no promises. But here's what I know. We want to make it easy for you to invite your friends. That's why every week it's the same. You know exactly what to expect. You know exactly what's going to happen. We, we, we want to create environments that nobody feels like they're on the outside looking in. But you can feel comfortable inviting your friends and your neighbors. And, and here's, here's what's amazing. Here's what we can do. We can, we can provide these environments and partner together, and we can present a very clear and compelling message of how much God loves people. Here's what we cannot do and we can never do. We can never be neighbors with the people you're neighbors with. We can never work with the people you work with. We can never be related to the people you're related to. And so God has uniquely and strategically positioned you in those circles of influence to be a light of the world. One of the simplest things you could do would be to share an invitation. Next week, we start a brand new series called The Rest of the Story. And we're going to be looking at just the eyewitness accounts of Jesus through the lens of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And what did he say about Jesus? And what did he experience? I want to encourage you to invite somebody. This series is going to lead us right up to Easter. We're doing seven Easter services. Get ready. Invite somebody in these next eight weeks because I think there's somebody that would say yes to an invitation that may never come on their own, but they might say yes if you invite them. This is what God did for us. He invited us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, he simply invites us into that, would not perish. In other words, would not be lost to God. Not as a GPS coordinate, but relationally lost to God, but instead would experience life forever, eternal life as a part of God's family. If you've never said yes to that, the invitation is extended to you, and you can say yes by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you, and I am so thankful that you never walk away from me. And so, God, I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. God, I pray for every single one of us. We recognize when we look at the labels that we use, we were once lost and now we're found. We were dead and now we're alive. 
because of you. And so may the way that we live our lives be like a light in the darkness. May our lives and our message point people to your love. And I pray, God, give us the boldness to invite someone to join us sometime in 2024. And let us watch in wonder as you do something amazing in their lives as well. We commit ourselves to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.